1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday the 9th of February. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting.
3: Labour has confirmed a U-turn. It is indeed scaling back on its flagship
4: Green Pledge. We won't reach the £28 billion envisaged. Prime Minister
5: Benjamin Netanyahu rejecting a counteroffer from Hamas for a ceasefire that could
6: stretch at least four and a half months. A student who tracks the private jets of celebrities says Taylor Swift's lawyers have threatened to sue him for sharing her flight information
0: online. For the first time, global warming has exceeded 1.5 degrees Celsius in the period from February 2023 to January 2024. I've seen the
1: headlines since the report was released about my willful retention of documents. I know there's some attention paid to some language in the report about my recollection of events. My memory is fine. Take a look at what I've done since I've become president.
2: To help try and figure out in this confusing week what should lead the news, I'm joined by Giles Wattel, Tortoise's deputy editor. Hello. And also Chloe Hadjimotheo. How are you, Chloe?
6: I'm well, thank you.
2: And I'm excited to say by Phil Collins, author, columnist, speechwriter to everyone from Tony Blair to Keir Starmer, And for your sins, former colleague of mine at the Times, very good to see you, Phil. Very good to be here. So we're going to try and do a condensed version of a bigger news meeting in the sense that many newsrooms have scores of people around the table. But between the four of us, we're going to try and figure out what we think should be leading the news. Each person pitches a story and then we try and make sense of whether that story is worthy of leading the news. Phil, why don't you go first? What do you think is the story of the week?
4: I think the story of the week is Labour's finally abandoned its £28
2: billion commitment to spend on various unspecified green initiatives. Chloe, what's yours?
6: BB says no.
2: This is Netanyahu who says no to the Hamas proposal on a ceasefire.
6: The latest proposal, that's right.
2: Charles, yours? Damn it all
3: for Africa. What's that mean? It's actually an exhortation, like it sounds, yeah? It's like, do go ahead and build an enormous dam across the Lower Congo in
2: DRC. So it's an argument in favour of building a hydroelectric plant. And it's also a news story. That we could take the £28
4: billion pounds that we're not <laughs> going to spend in Britain and
2: we could transfer it and that could be the, the story underneath. And the the story hit the 0.7% commitment on aid. All right, um, let's start, if we can, Chloe, with yours. Let's start with what's happening, Israel and Gaza.
6: So uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu has said he will not accept the latest true steel uh, proposed by Hamas. He claims that Israel is just a touch away from a decisive victory, that it's a matter of months before Hamas is completely wiped out. Uh, the American Secretary of State, who's been in the Middle East, Anthony Blinken, has agreed that Hamas's proposal was unrealistic and guaranteed to fail, but sees it as positive that they were prepared to sit at the table. But Bibi, or um, Prime Minister Netanyahu, um, has painted this as no alternative. There is no alternative to his war. He says if they do not continue with their military offensive in Gaza to completely wipe out Hamas, it's only a matter of time until there's another massacre. And Israel is now preparing a ground offensive in Rafa, which is where a lot of the refugees from the Gaza Strip have been pushed. This is the very southern point of Gaza. And everyone is shouting about you know, serious danger of war crimes and massive loss of life continuing. Phil, isn't this
2: by far and away the most important story of the week, in the sense that for two weeks in a row now, Netanyahu has put himself at odds, not just with the, you know, process towards a Palestinian state and peace, but at odds with Western allies. And that is fundamental for what's happening on the ground in Gaza, but also for the longer term future for Israel. It's hugely important, of course, and you know it's
4: it raises once again the worry that friends of Israel have had from the very beginning, which is the you know, the observation, Victor Hugo's observation: you can't drive t- tanks through an idea. So when, if and when you get to this military solution, which you have to see, regardless as rather distant, what follows? So yes, of course, it's an incredibly important staging post in an argument which. The interest, really interesting thing about it is Netanyahu's conjecture that the end is in sight. Uh, I'd be very interested if Blinken were thought the same. Uh, certainly the Americans have not so far f- felt the same. And that's the thing that really, really worries me about this uh, whole endeavor, which is I can't see where it ends. I can't see that the objective can be served because no sooner, it's exactly what happened with Al-Qaeda, no sooner do you eradicate this current cohort
2: of people than another one arises. What do you think, Chloe, about what this does to the prospects, ultimately of a two-state solution of a Palestinian state?
6: I think before we even get there, picking up on what Phil said, you know, you can't see where this ends. I'm not completely convinced that Benjamin Netanyahu can see where it ends either. And what worries me about it is that it seems, I think, you know, as somebody who's followed Israel and the Palestinians over the years, it's... Israel has always had this reputation as quite sophisticated in its intelligence and in its approaches. And and this is pretty much the most unsophisticated response I have ever seen. And there doesn't seem to be an end plan. You know, now people are saying there will be no day after. But Netanyahu is still talking as though there is a goal that can be achieved.
2: Jones.
3: There was a good piece, excellent piece in The Guardian today by Jason Burke, who had interviewed, without the blessing of the IDF, a lot of demobilized Israeli soldiers who've been in there and come out again and spoke anonymously. And to what uh, you were just saying, Chloe, what was striking about what they said was how unsophisticated the conduct of the war has been. So just as an example, one scene a young soldier describes uh, long periods of boredom and nothing happening, which is often the way, and then suddenly a glimpse of a Hamas fighter, and then, I paraphrase the quote, we just brought everything down, right? We threw everything at them until an entire city block was, was destroyed. That's, that's how the war is being fought. Uh, Netanyahu says Hamas is delusional in requiring... Uh, the withdrawal of all Israeli troops uh, as a condition for uh, a a long ceasefire. I mean, I think the bigger picture is that Netanyahu is the delusional one in thinking that you can defeat Hamas uh, militarily. And his strategy is based on a perpetuation of the premise on which his premierships have been based on until now, that Israel can thrive. Uh, without an accommodation with the Palestinians. But this doesn't end until there's some kind of accommodation with the Palestinians. So
2: you pointed me to the Aleph Ben yeah. piece, Aleph Ben being the editor of Haaretz, who wrote this foreign affairs piece. I read it, Charles. I have to say, I found it really, really depressing and worrying because th- the argument that runs through it is, if you follow Netanyahu's political career and his success within Israeli politics, it basically takes you from Oslo to Gaza. It basically takes you from an opposition to the Oslo Peace Accords, the idea that land for peace didn't work, i.e. the deal to give Palestinians land in Gaza, land in the West Bank didn't work, and explains his strategy of trying to divide and conquer between the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and Qatar-backed Hamas in Gaza, and that that was a political strategy in order to avoid a Palestinian state, avoid a long-term accommodation. And so you feel when you read that, that this decision on the Hamas proposal is part of a very, very entrenched worldview, political view. And I think there's something very worrying about, more than worrying, obviously, about Israel being led by someone who has a political philosophy which is built around not making a permanent settlement.
4: Absolutely. I mean, that leads you to the obvious conclusion, which is a depressing conclusion because it's not something for today, that there will be no progress on this whilst Netanyahu is in situ. That just seems obviously true. And Israeli politics beyond Netanyahu will, in a sense, have to start again, but from an obvious position of, of disaster. So I think that's exactly the conclusion you have to draw. I think
6: that's right. And I think actually this war is a kind of continuation of Netanyahu's view of the Palestinians as a sort of footnote, as a sort of slight inconvenience that he has to sidestep towards, you know, making Israel an economic success. And he's he's largely done that over the last 10 years. I think things have been quiet and Israel has been prospering. But this is what you get at the end of it when people talk about it not being sustainable you know for the last 10 years he's been able to say look look you know we've been living it but this is what you get at the end of it and I fear that that's what he's also doing in Gaza he's trying to get rid of Hamas in his very unsophisticated way and it's questionable about whether that is a a goal that's achievable but again the Palestinians are an afterthought and a footnote in this war and what you get is a population that has been so damaged and harmed and brutalised by this war that it will be very, very difficult to find anyone in there who can sit at a negotiating table.
4: But I think what you might think, though, with respect to the news value of this story right now, is precisely for the reasons Chloe's just given, it's yet another instance which is, in a sense, the same, depressingly the same thing over and over again, not a rupture. I
2: don't think so, Phil. I really don't think so, because I think what happens here with these moments is that something solidifies in public opinion, possibly inside uh, Israel and Gaza. I don't know. I can't judge that. But you can definitely feel it shifting within the West. And the relationship between that and political opinion So the fact that you have David Lammy out and about saying we're going to unilaterally or we might unilaterally uh, recognize a Palestinian state, you've got David Cameron effectively saying the same thing, you've got Blinken coming out of meetings, Tony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, coming out of meetings with Saudi saying these meetings are going very well. What happens to an Israel that's much more isolated and whose historic friends and supporters are much more equivocal at best about their relationship with the Israeli government.
3: This is an Israel that's still being offered the support of the Gulf states and Saudi. Basically, as long as it ditches Netanyahu, as long as there is a change, it won't that extent. Forget the West. What about the region? Won't won't that dynamic, which let's admit it started on the on Trump's watch in Washington, encourage movement towards? a new government within Israel. At the moment, there's a strange catch for 22, which is uh, Netanyahu is more and more isolated within his his own country, but there's a war on and there's not much uh, appetite for an election while there's a war on.
2: Let's turn in a second to Keir Starmer, 28 billion the green economy and what kind of government we may have in store at the end of the year but first let's just go to the story that everyone's talking about Giles's dam on a river in uh, West Africa
3: thank you <laughs> <laughs> let me be clear I'm actually not trying to lead the news I'm just trying to be on the news <laughs> Dimitrios Papathanasiu is the World Bank's director for Global Energy and Extractives. And earlier this week, at a mining conference in South Africa, he said, we're really trying to get it off the ground again. This is going to be a tremendous transformative process for Africa. So what's it? It is the Grand Inga Dam across the lower Congo in the Democratic Republic of Congo, quite close to the Atlantic Ocean. And the moment I mentioned this upstairs, uh, more than one person in the Tortoise Newsroom tried to can i use french yes piss all over the story (laughs) Uh, oh yeah why oh why (laughs) we've been what we've been there this is the kind of thing that comes around every couple of years and in fact it's true that about four years ago i sent a reporter to drc to report on this oh we did this story we did it's a heck (laughs) of a story why are you looking that like that So hold on a second. Just explain that James Harding. <laughs> can see the it's all whirring. coming back to me now. This oh, is the worst damn.
2: thing. This <laughs> is the worst thing about basically a life in journalism, the news, <laughs> is these stories come along. You think, oh yeah, that sounds vaguely familiar. Then you realise that you actually reported it or you commissioned it. We did. So hold on. What's new in the Great Inga Dam story that we? What Sent I just to four that, years ago.
4: Everybody won't know already. <laughs> yes.
2: <laughs>
4: what I
3: just read out verbatim, what Demetrios Papathanasiu said about it at this mining conference in South Africa. The World Bank hitherto has not been foursquare behind this dam. I am inferring from this unequivocal remark that it is now. And uh, that means, just to be very clear, this dam, if built, would cost a lot of money, about the same as HS2, but it would double... Um, uh, it, it would provide twice as much power as the Three Gorges Dam in uh, uh, China and it would add about 25% to the entire continent's power supply.
2: And oh, okay, I yeah, totally you know, know You know all that. No, no, right? I don't know that. I don't know that because we commissioned it. I, I read it. It was excellent and I've forgotten it. What I don't understand, Charles, genuinely, is in news judgment terms, why do you think that story even warrants being on the news now? Isn't that a classic processology? story, which is, you know those guys you've never heard of who are important in the blended finance of a hydroelectric power scheme? They were previously saying no. Now they're saying yes.
3: Uh, No. This, this. this, Don't be so foolish. (laughs) This this is, I will grant you a a perennial. But I submit, Your Honour, that the World Bank's remarks on it in the region this week are newsworthy. You have China in, and frankly, you have a lot of anxiety that if Western investors don't build it, China will, as they as they did. They, they like building dams, including the Grand Renaissance Dam in, uh, in in Ethiopia. You've got Fortescue Minerals in as the lead Western cons- con- contractor. You've got uh, Chikise- Chisikedi, the um, uh, Congolese uh, president, in. You've got South Africa in with the. A very large pre-pledged order for the uh, power to power its minds. and all you need is an umbrella organisation, development bank like the World Bank, to be in too. And now they're in, so and w- it would be transformative. What's changed,
4: Charles? What? Why? why they, were, are they They all weren't in, all in all of before. But why? Why? Why have they all decided to change their mind, or whoever's changed their mind? What's behind it? Nice work, Phil. <laughs> He's no idea, really. <laughs> <laughs> the
3: the continent needs a lot more electricity
2: that hasn't changed
3: and it but it needs much more than you think it there's a very strong argument for distributed power all over africa so small solar small yes. wind right but it but because africa has to supply all the critical minerals for all our evs it needs a lot more than that it needs baseload as well we don't want it to be nuclear so this provides it let me this is very personal for me 50 years ago I, I have a thing about African dams. I <laughs> threw. I started pitching this story. <laughs> I, I threw a, a bright orange uh, fishing line into the swirling brown waters below the Kainji Dam, which is the biggest dam on the Niger River in Nigeria, and I immediately caught a fish, uh, a catfish, <laughs> which we cooked and ate beside the river. Ever since then, I've regarded them as symbols of hope, optimism, progress. And since then, of course, we've had the Grand Renaissance Dam, in, um, in Ethiopia, which is going to be transformative for Ethiopia, even if it causes trouble with Egypt. And we've had Tortoise's memorable commission of a piece on <laughs> the Grand Inga. Right,
2: we are going to, I think it's amazing as a story. Mm-hmm. And I think... G-
6: Giles' one is at least a feel good story in a kind of, in a world of a lot of misery right now, I think.
2: True. And also, by the way, the only thing, I, uh, actually to be fair, now I'm pitching Charles's story, it also is really important in the story of the World Bank. Mm-hmm. Because the World Bank has had a, a bad run, and if it can make something like this happen, that will be a significant moment. And the
3: story of South Africa's rolling blackouts, remember ESCOM? Yes. They need a solution.
2: Yeah, but that's not going to be provided Absolutely. by the a dam.
3: Yes, it will. Why? How is that going to help? Um, South Africa's the prime customer.
2: Oh, is it? Okay. All right, forgive me. I don't know what I'm talking about. All the better that we should understand this story and should make its so way we're on the news. Um, let's take a beat and then we're going to go to the £28 billion in green funding that is now no longer going to green funding.
0: I'm Afua Hush.
5: I'm Peter Frankopan.
0: And in our podcast, Legacy, we explore the lives of some of the biggest characters in history.
5: This season, we're exploring the life of Cleopatra.
0: An iconic life full of romances, sieges, and tragedy. But who was the real Cleopatra? It feels like her story's been told by others with their own agenda for centuries.
5: But her legacy is enduring. And so we're going to dive into how her story has evolved all the way up to today.
0: I am so excited to talk about Cleopatra, Peter. She is an icon.
2: Do the basics first. What was Labour promising? What's it now decided? And what's the significance of that? A couple of years ago,
4: Labour, instigated by Ed Miliband, announced that it would spend £28 billion per annum by the end of its first term in government. So it would ramp up to £28 billion. So it would be a a total over a parliament of somewhere in excess of £100 billion. And there are things that they specify they would buy. There's home insulation programs, GB energy, and a whole series of other things. Problem with that announcement, which in one sense is something that does need to happen, is that they led very conspicuously with the number. And there has been, in recent times, they're trying to write a manifesto. And a manifesto is not a process of gathering policies to put in, as you think. It's a process of taking policies out because it's not a government document, it's a campaign document. And you look at the manifesto and you think, is that going to cause me a problem? Gone. Red pen. That's what's happened here. That they should never really have allowed the 28 billion to be the lead item, but it has been the lead item. And this week, the Labour Party had an otherwise very successful business conference at the Oval Cricket Ground. 400 executives, all keen to know what the next government are going to do. Really good event, entirely overshadowed by the fact that the, all the coverage thereafter was about the, will you or won't you abandon the pledge to spend £28 billion per annum. There's been a bit of in and out all week. Keir Starmer appeared to commit again to the pledge. Rachel Reeves was, in, was incredibly evasive. The shadow business secretary, Johnny Reynolds, wasn't prepared to, to to stand up for it either. And then finally, it's been
2: killed off. So should we just do one thing at a time? Because it says something to you about Starmer and his approach to winning the election... It says something about Labour and the environment, and it doesn't tell you much and leaves lots of questions to be asked about what kind of government we will actually get if Labour, as looks likely, wins. So let's do the political strategy first. What does it tell you about Starmer? It tells you that,
4: and this sounds like a low bar in politics, but it's not, it tells you he really, really wants to win. Now, in the the Labour Party, that's not something you can always assume. Uh, The Labour Party likes to tell you how it should win, And if you don't like it, well, then it's your fault. And Starmer is absolutely not doctrinal like that. So if he can be persuaded that this is problematic politically, he will renege on something he said. And that's what he's done.
2: So, in front of I had dinner this week with a former Labour cabinet minister who said the really interesting difference between Keir Starmer and Ed Miliband is that Ed had not fully internalised the will to win. I think that's absolutely right. And I think it's rarer
4: than you think. In politics, because particularly in the Labour Party, where obviously you go into Labour politics with a certain desire to do things. You you do have a doctrinal background, and then that collides with reality. And Starmer has come late to politics. He's not as formed intellectually and ideologically as lots of people in Labour politics. And he's very, very technocratic about it. And he has the most interesting thing about watching him up close is seeing him learn. Now, he he moves albeit slowly, as you've seen on this occasion. It was a rather a creep to the right position. But he does get there slowly, and he is prepared to do the things that he regards as necessary to win. Do you think Ed Miliband will last in this post? Ed Miliband's quite close to Keir Starmer, and Starmer's loyal to him, and there's been lots of suggestions that Ed would have gone by now. So I think he'll last into government. I think he'll serve in government. What happens thereafter, you never know. I mean, Ed is a... Is a is a difficult person for the Labour Party because, he's, because of the history, because he, he lost an election and people don't know many of the shadow cabinet. It's not exactly an incredibly famous gallery of, of celebrities and Ed is one of those who is recognised and it's not always good.
2: And what do you say to people, Phil, who look at this and worry, if not despair, that the Labour Party is, by the latest measure, set to win a majority of more than 100 seats... The country has profound structural problems on growth and really deep problems in its public services, in NHS, social care, not to mention everything that's happening in local councils. And people want a prospective government that comes in and says, we see the problems and we are going to do something about it. And they look at this and think every time Keir Starmer gets close to a policy that is meaningful, that has any substance to it, he shies. Yeah. I mean, that's true. Um, It's a
4: question of whether you think that's a strategically intelligent thing to do or not, just for purposes of winning the election.
2: Now, look beyond... But but hold on, just what you're implicit in that is, he's going to win the election and then get in and do things. I think,
4: inevitably, you do things when you get in. But the... I mean, I I, I would agree with the, the sort of implication of the question, which is that the inheritance will be really bad governing is going to be very hard and if you don't come in with any sort of guide to where you're going that makes it harder still so there's no doubt i think that a labor government will start in a very difficult position and and not having clear plans is a big part of that and i mean there are caveats there are qualifications and reasons why the plans aren't well developed in two years of covid the worst defeats is 1935, having to clear out the anti-Semites in the Labour Party. All of these are good reasons why they're less well-developed on policy, but nevertheless, it remains a very severe deficiency of a, of a government-to-be. Chloe,
2: what do you think?
6: Oh, I think a couple of things. I think that it, it does feel a bit depressing that um, every, Labour feels... It seems to an outsider that Labour feels afraid to put forward anything positive, and this was one thing that felt very positive. And also, in, in talking to young people, Uh, the environment is incredibly important to them. So you kind of lose that. And I feel like young people have also been really exercised about the deaths in Gaza. And they also feel like the Labour Party hasn't stepped up strongly enough on that. And this feels like another thing off the back of that that will affect the younger vote and perception. So it feels like a defensive position when Labour should be feeling strong.
3: Charles? That's a fair point. i just say on the environmental part of it, that nothing the UK can do uh, will be anything more than symbolic. And 28 billion seems a lot here. It is unaffordable given current uh, price of capital, but it, it, wouldn't, it would have been a drop in the ocean environmentally. And there are three simple things that a new Labour government can and should do to get back on the symbolic environmental front foot. One is to bring the deadline for phasing out internal combustion engines back to 2030 from 2035. Uh, another is to stop the absurdity of fanfare for new or supposedly new oil and gas auctions in the North Sea.
4: Well, John, let's, let's imagine that instead of this, these contortions over the number, Labour had been saying exactly that for the, for the last six months. And that would have then excited the ambition, that would have been... And in a sense, that's what I'm saying, is that that that, that is exactly the conversation you want the Labour Party to be having. Instead, they're saying, let's talk
2: about the price of it. It, the, The only worry I've got in all of this, and maybe it's the worry of someone who's too interested in politics and too interested in government and not understanding enough of what you need to win, but I really worry about the country... And I'd really like to understand what the right choices are for trying to get the UK back on track. And what I worry about is that the opposition, with the luxury of opposition, doesn't spend time really interrogating different economic options. And implicit in this is we're going to come in and we're going to try and have a different outcome with exactly the same formula. without having a debate about do we tax more, do we borrow more, or do we spend less, it seems to me it's very hard to understand what the difference is that Labour brings other than perhaps kind of competence and energy. Yeah, I think that's a fair
4: point. And I think it it points to something bigger than this story, which is that there doesn't seem to me to be an enormous amount of intellectual energy on the left. I mean, I remember the time leading up to the Blair government and for what it was worth, there was an awful amount of intellectual endeavour. Lots of people are thinking about these things all the time. And, there was, and it doesn't feel like that at the moment.
2: And, and part of the argument, Phil, is, is that if you don't try and figure out what you think, by the time you get into government and you're getting knocked this way and that by things that you can't possibly expect, you don't have the time to think. No, you
4: become defined by your problems. So that's exactly what happens. If you haven't got a course that you're charting, then you end up being defined by the things that happen to you. And that's very much my fear. For a, for a labour government and how much
2: do you think the argument about rachel reeves that says there's a kind of political calculation that makes sense but an economic exploration that's missing i.e. the political calculation is i'm not going to frighten people with the prospect of higher taxes or greater debts and the knock on mortgages but the result of that is she's going to get in there and be a creature of the treasury because she's going to be essentially be trapped by the same envelope that the Conservatives set in government. Yeah, I mean, she is, there, there, there's a cage there. I mean, my
4: my own views. I don't think any of this will matter all that much for the outcome of the election, which I think has already taken place. So I think the Conservative Party are done, and so I don't. I think this is marginal in the in the in actually in the calculation, and and everything we're talking about is calculation. Um, so I don't think it will make an enormous difference. So there will be, it will be incredibly constrained when she gets in, there's no doubt. The thing on which the Labour government will rest will be whether or not there's an uptick in growth and whether the, the encouragement of inward investment has any success at all. The one point where Starmer has been quite, quite bold, in fact, in some of his pronouncements, and, and sort of surprisingly so, is when he talks about the possibility of investment. I think he takes the view there's quite a lot of money waiting to come to Britain for a more stable government. And I think that's where his optimism lies. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But I think for the reason you gave, an awful lot rests on that assumption.
2: Yeah, kind of relief and the release of new money into the country. Chloe, um, assuming you don't choose the Netanyahu story, what story would you lead with between the 28 billion? And in all seriousness,
5: oh, probably the largest...
2: Serious. No, no, I mean, if it's, if it's the largest... Uh, hydro, a hydro project, a transformation of the global perception of the World Bank. It's
3: not about perceptions, it's about actual electricity. <laughs> I'm trying to help
2: here, Giles. <laughs> the, to- the top Chloe... line in
6: the article was actually the World Bank feels good about the dam. <laughs> well, that itself is a happy moment,
2: you know. I, I think people in the World Bank haven't felt good for long enough. So okay, I, I would what choose, story? Tell us. I would this is a mystery. Still
6: story, but the question is how to frame it. And I wonder if the way to frame it is how to destroy a good policy by <laughs> writing it wrong in the first place, you know?
2: I, I do think there's an interesting thing about Ed Miliband and how he framed it and how they all framed it. Um, yeah.
4: They've ended up worshipping the wrong thing. The number rather than The number the rather direction. than the direction, rather than the policy, rather than the thing that gets people excited. Nobody's going to rally around and say, save the 28 billion, because it's not a real thing. It mm. doesn't. It's a meaningless thing, but the
2: policy's got lost in it. The, the 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 problem of course with that is that if you don't put a concrete number on things government can't operate um so the worry for me is that we're going to go into an election of just verbiage yep <laughs> <laughs> much to look forward yeah, to in 2024 exactly. yeah. okay, you don't Phil, have to cover it <laughs> Phil it's hard for me to know which way you're going to go between uh, the Great Inga Dam and the uh, Netanyahu <laughs> rejection of the Hamas proposal but tell us well I, in fact I was I was so persuaded by Chloe I
4: thought it was more important than my one but so, <laughs> so I'm going to go for the BB says no
2: Charles
3: I'm going to go for the 28 billion because I think it's a small version of a bigger thing and the bigger thing is a sensible relationship with Europe so Starmer can't tell the truth about what he wants to do about green investment now because it would be a political problem between now and the election. He can't tell the truth about what he wants to do about a sensible relationship with Europe because it would be a political problem between now and the election.
2: You won't be surprised to know that I think that Chloe's story, that Netanyahu's rejection of the Hamas proposal, is the most important story, not just because it cements what's already, I guess, quite cemented uh, views about what's happening Israel and Gaza. But I think that the longer this goes on, not only do you have the horrors of the death toll and the grief, but you have the greater risk of escalation. We've already seen that. And so getting to some kind of a ceasefire slash peace and B a pathway to a settlement, a pathway to a Palestinian state. Both those things seem incredibly important. And this puts Netanyahu and Israel at the centre of that question, as you said, Phil, it, how the world moves on while Netanyahu continues to uh, set the direction for Israel seems to me to be kind of the central story of the year so far. So with that, uh, I would then be enormously tempted to run Giles' story second, just kind of (laughs) to be supportive really <laughs> and kind um, but <laughs> that's not the way the news works so of course you'd take uh, uh, I think the 28 billion and what we've learned from Keir Starmer and about Keir Starmer particularly in a week when that 1.5 number uh, has been hit and I do think the Inga Dam makes the news but I think you'd reframe it as uh, World Bank commits to Inga Dam yeah with that <laughs> Phil uh, thank you for coming in. No, you're welcome. Um, and Giles and Chloe, thank you both too. Um, if you think that, frankly, Giles is right, and we should have led the news on the Inga Dam, send us a message, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com, or if you think, frankly, any other story should have made it, do send a voicemail or a message. It's great to hear from you, newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. We're gonna be back on Monday. Have a good week. And it pains me to do this, but this has been a week where... You could argue that the real stories are both once again on the other side of the Atlantic. Trump in front of the courts and Biden in front of the court of public opinion on his fitness for a second term. Here he is, first mistaking Macron for Mitterrand and then Merkel for Cole.
1: Right right after I was elected, I went to what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said, uh, said, you know, what? Why? why how, how long are you back for? <laughs> and I looked at him and the, and the chancellor of Germany said, what would you say, Mr. President? you picked up the paper tomorrow in the London Times, and the London Times said, a thousand people break through the House of Commons, break down the doors, two bobbies are killed in order to stop the election of the Prime Minister, what would you say? I never thought about it from that perspective. What would we say if that happened in another democracy around the world? Well, the whole world watched, the whole world watched,